Pious and elaborate treatise concerning prayer and the answer of prayer by John Brown of Wamfrey. We're up to chapter 14, how we should pray to God as a father. Uh, Brown uh, set before us John 14, verses 13 and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, in the previous chapter, we spent a couple of weeks going over that. It was a longer chapter. And um, Brown set forth a number of points about the right manner of, of prayer and um, what he wants to do in this chapter is continue that, but with particular reference to the the uh, person prayed to, which is God. And so um, we want to look at a particular relation, and th- this is um, this is going to explain why. Ordinarily, uh, we pray to God as Father. We're going we're to talk about that in this chapter. Uh, why there's good reason for, in, in a sense, prioritizing the first person uh, in the Trinity when we're praying with, without, at the same time, uh, losing sight of the fact, as he's pointed out, that we we need to keep in mind we're praying to God, and that that entails yeah that entails praying to the Son and the Spirit. So we we don't want there is a one will correct. So we're, we're yes. saying the Father is Christ's will to be those things. But even in the previous yes. theory, uh, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I will do. It, correct? Yes. Yeah. There's one will in God, and so there's there's one mind in God. Right, so we're 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 appealing to the same mind and will um, <clears throat> in 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 three persons. Yeah, this mind and will are being um, are being carried out uh, through the uh, through the working of the three persons. There's, there is a sense in which the working of God, God is working in concert, but at the same time, um, and we, we see this in the, in the catechisms. <clears throat> there are particular persons. Well, there, there are particular persons that we see in the Bible are, are, um, given first consideration. When discussing uh, this or that thing, for example, you know, effectual calling, the Catechism says is the work of God's Spirit. Does that mean that it's not the work of the Father or the Son? No, but it's peculiarly the work of the Spirit because the Spirit's working in us effectually uh, to to draw us to God. Yeah. So every. Every person, you know, the the um, the Apostles' Creed, 
that in in the course of that, the Nicene Creed follows this: uh, the idea that that the Father is uh, the Creator, the Son is the Redeemer, the Spirit is the Life Giver. Right? Does that mean that the Son and the Spirit are not involved in creation? No. Does that mean the Father and the Spirit are not involved in redemption? No. Does that mean that the Father and the Son have nothing to do with uh, giving life to the creature, you know, whether natural or, or spiritual? Uh, and the answer is no. <clears throat> yeah. But there are there are three persons working, and we understand that there are certain works which are more properly attributed to this person rather than that person in the Trinity. Well, this is when we when we're talking about working, we're talking about economy. All right, but economy, I think we we need to keep in mind economy, in some sense, <clears throat> economy um, tends to reflect. Uh, things that have to do with ontology, with the very being of God. Or because God is a most simple being and not a compounded being, there can only be one God. The, 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 the substance, usia, that is God is indivisible, inseparable, you can't divide it, you know, you can't, you can't uh, uh, distinguish that which is God. What you can distinguish, what we can distinguish in God are certain personal properties. And these certain personal properties have a bearing in relation uh, to the economy or the working of God in creation, providence, and redemption. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to, we're actually going to be looking at that a little bit in this chapter. So we're going to be looking at uh, several things uh, concerning, the, it's really one matter here that he wants to address about right manner of prayer. Uh, and then it is a series of um, considerations on this point. So uh, question 296 uh, what is to be further cleared in the manner of right prayer? And this is really our subject. Um, as I said, chapter 14 is how we should pray to God as Father. And so uh, the, what is to be cleared is uh, the right manner of prayer For in order for us to engage in prayer in the right manner, we need to consider the object of our invocation, which is particularly this, God as standing under the relation of a father. <clears throat> now there's a reason why, or there's several reasons why we want to um, we want to think upon God as Father when we're praying, and that's really what the the remainder of this chapter is going to cover. All right, but there is 297. There's a particular restriction that Brown wants to study in this chapter, and that is 
<coughs> he wants to uh, consider God not as father of um, the great family of heaven and earth, right? There's a sense in which God is to be considered the father of all mankind by, by reason of creation, but he wants to consider, um, he, and he wants to restrict our discussion to contemplating God as the father of his adopted children. That is, as he stands in relation to the covenant of grace. <clears throat> and as we stand related to him in that covenant of grace. Right, so there's a sense in which everybody in the world uh, can and, and should refer to God as father. Have you ever had this idea? Yes. Uh, but what they don't have, they when they refer to God as Father, their reference is to creation and not so much uh, to redemption. Christianity is is saying, no, we need to learn that God is not only the Father of our creation, but he is the Father of our redemption. And that uh, for fallen creatures, that's a much more important consideration now. <clears throat> so Brown wants to um, to focus our attention on on this point or this aspect of the fatherhood of God. You know, there's a lot of of um, talk. There has been really for. Oh, since the early part of the 20th century, there's been this movement to emphasize the universal fatherhood of God. Maybe even in the 19th century, you, you start to find some of this thinking, but it really takes off in the 20th century and in um, various movements. One is called the social gospel movement. Uh, it, it is it, emphasizing God as father, creator, uh, that's behind all that we would call liberal theology. Uh, that universalizing tendency uh, where Christianity starts to see itself and treat itself as sort of one among many religions, right? And so then you see these ec these big ecumenical meetings where you have, you know, Jewish rabbis and, and Islamic imams Billy and Graham. Hindu priests, right, and people like Billy Graham all hanging out. But uh, <clears throat> you know, those kinds of, of um, events are the result of this emphasizing of God, Father, Creator, and downplaying the doctrine of redemption. And that is really to uh, to eradicate Christianity. It, you know, the need for Christianity, the, the rationale for Christianity, um, and and um, any particular emphasis on what Christianity presents and and um, why Christianity is not. Uh, quite frankly, like any other religion in the world. <clears throat> right? When you start to consider this idea of adoption, uh, we have to get into then this 
idea of Christ, and we need to start talking then about the exclusive claims of Christianity, which a lot of people find highly offensive now. You know, and it's it's funny how many people who, who find the exclusive claims of Christianity troubling or problematic, but they want to tell us, oh, don't worry, don't, um, you know, we're, we're not going to sideline Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. Well, you know, if you read what Jesus says and you see what Jesus did, Jesus is again and again emphasizing the exclusivist, uh, the exclusivity, the exclusiveness of uh, Christianity. You know, when he says things like, I am the truth, you know, the way, the truth, the life. Uh, he doesn't say, I'm a way, I'm a truth, I'm a life, as if I'm one of many. He's claiming to himself uh, something very exclusive. And it's a claim that we, uh, you, you can't really say, well, I accept Jesus, but I don't accept what he says. I mean, it makes no sense. Right? He's left us in a position where we have to either accept uh, him at face value uh, telling us what he's told us, or we reject Christianity, right? So, you know, toleration, um, this toleration of and freedom of religion that we see is really, it's freedom of every religion except for that religion which is, by its very nature, intolerant and exclusive, which is Christianity. Right. Every other religion, to some extent, can afford to be um, more inclusive because they're not actually making the kinds of claims that uh, Christianity is making at this point. Right? I mean, even even Islam has some kind of hope that they hold out for observant Jews and observant Christians. Rome people the book <clears throat> Romans believe that for a long time yeah and they've they've practiced that for a long time <clears throat> I guess you can see it culminating now with the current Pope well the current Pope signed some sort of covenant with um, some Islamic leader uh, and I, I basically you know sort of recognizing this Islamic leader is being on the same plane. Which, um, if we were ta if we were talking antichrist, I would agree. Um, they are, you know, both equally antichrist, but uh, they meant something else altogether. I'm sure. All right, let's move into some of these questions. Then, uh, two ninety eight. What's the first thing remembered to be, uh, remembered about God as Father? And then we want to consider why, and then uh, in the third place, what confidence should we derive from this? So, <clears throat> first of all, uh, he, he says we should remember God as Father so that we are confident to approach God in prayer with a filial, sweet, Heartsome boldness and confidence. We want to, in other words, we want to approach God in, in a way uh, 
with childlike faith, right? With hopeful expectation, like, you know, like children do their, their fathers. Right? You, you come with a hope, a want. Um, we're not to be approaching God as uh, a malefactor would a judge. That's really what he's getting at here. <clears throat> okay, because uh, malefactor comes before a judge thinking, you know, I'm guilty and, and there's sort of this pleading and the begging and all of the things that go along with that. And, and quite frankly, you know, when we talk about non-Christian religion, that's the way they pray to God. Right? They pray as guilty people um, seeking mercy from the great judge of the earth. Right? I'm not saying that we should not be seeking mercy, but we're talking about the attitude of the approach. You know, this is why in um, in heathen religions uh, they had all of these animal sacrifices, and they still a lot of these uh, animistic tribal religions around the world still practice forms of, of uh, animal sacrifice and and other very unpleasant things that are meant to address this idea of atonement. Uh, when God, when the people of God are doing this, God is instructing them that these things are types and shadows looking forward to Christ in the Old Testament. But uh, these, these people are looking at their relation to God in what we would call a legalistic way. And their approach to God is in terms of the law. And in those terms, you can only approach God, you know, as a malefactor, knowing that you, um, you are justly going to be condemned. And so this is really why these people... Um, and, and Romanism instills this too. Uh, this is the paganism of Romanism. You know, they, they've they got people jumping through hoops and, you know, going on pilgrimages and uh, doing all kinds of things to try to placate the, the judge. And I think there's part of that, <clears throat> part of that view is why they don't want to pray directly to God. Right? They want to pray through the mediation of saints and, and Mary. Because they have this idea that God is just sort of this big mean spirit in the sky. Right? But we shouldn't do that. We should be approaching with this childlike faith and, and childlike uh, devotion. Because in, in this work of redemption uh, that's held forth in Christ, right? God is the father of Jesus. And 
he's brought us into um, into a state of reconciliation. Right? We we see Jesus uh, in uh, in in the place of sonship, and we're told that in and through what he's done, we too now occupy that place. So, the confidence that we should uh, that we should arise, or, or that we should. Um, uh, derive from this is is the kind of confidence he and, and this is Brown points out kind of confidence that um, <clears throat> the prodigal son has when he starts to return home and he says it shouldn't be the kind of confidence that would make us proud um, but the kind of confidence that you know he could confess that he doesn't really uh, doesn't really deserve to be called a son anymore, and and yet knowing that he will be received into um, a better position with the father than he would with anybody else, right? <clears throat> so if he treated anyone else like that, he couldn't expect there to be any way back. Um, but there's a confidence that comes from, from knowing uh, what Christ has done and knowing that, you know, he has made this possible for us. Right now, 299, this confidence is in opposition to three things. Uh, the first thing he says, A, 299A, uh, the confidence is in opposition to that sinful, uh, predominating and prevailing discouragement that can cause people to become despondent and hopeless and and even despair of you know coming to any resolve right they <clears throat> we have this confidence that when we we pray he'll hear us when we approach him he'll receive us so we don't have to uh we don't have to become despondent or despair or, or, you know, in any way find ourselves uh, spiritually marginalized, thinking God is not going to hear, not going to um, take any kind of, of um, notice of our supplicating. All right, a second thing. This confidence opposition to the second thing here. And that is a slavish fear 
that would keep the soul back from God as an enemy uh, that bears no goodwill but hates him. So there's some people, what he's saying is, in the first instance, there's some people who despair that God would ever hear of them. They just don't have confidence because they know they're sinners. There are other people who actually view God and are held back in this matter of prayer because they know they're guilty and they have a sense that, you know, what, like, why would God listen to me? Why would, you know, I'm, I, like, I know I'm an enemy of God and why, if I came to him, would he bother with me? person in that place, though, is still in a better position than the person who doesn't even see his sins, correct? That's often the, the, one of the first steps to... Uh, it, not necessarily. No, <clears throat> no because if you... I, I, to have a legal view uh, of your, your situation without any view of the gospel is not a good place. Right? I mean, the gospel... The, the law is of use when the gospel is next to it. But when there is no gospel, uh, the law is just going to be this condemning, this awful condemning thing. Which is why, you know, the heathen, they don't want to hear, they, they don't want to hear anything about, you know, what's right and wrong. And they don't want to, they don't want to consider the righteous demands of the law. And you see, you can see this, um, you know, if you ever talked to someone and gotten onto the discussion of, of you know, things which have to do with moral absolutes, right? Very quickly, people will become uncomfortable uh, when they are really just sort of standing there, having the law hit them, and they have uh, little or no knowledge of the gospel. <clears throat> All right, third, C, 299C, third thing, the confidence in opposition to, this third thing, and that is, to groundless suspicion and jealousies of God, uh, as if he wouldn't be so good and gentle and gracious as he's declared himself to be. So that's, that's sort of a, I guess that's the kinds of doubts that fill the minds of men before they're really um, convinced of the grace of God and the gospel, right? You know, yeah, the Bible says that, but I'm really a bad person. They have the they they have the understanding of it, but they don't have the true faith. Yeah, they they what they have what they have they tend to have a a pretty good sense of their own badness, uh, and <clears throat> it's sort of coupled with the idea that I'm so bad, even God couldn't possibly forgive me. Right? God couldn't possibly. Um, take up my cause. Yeah, I know he said this sort of thing in the Bible, but that's not for people like me. So in, in contrast to that is the confidence that you would have, you know, 
by reason of being adopted into the family of God. We have this confidence that we we know that when we pray, God will hear us. We have this confidence that when we approach unto him, he's not going to draw back. We have this confidence that, you know, he's going to do what he said he will do. You know, the point is, unbelievers uh, and those who are faced with the claims of the law of God, they're conflicted all over the place. You know, until you have embraced Jesus as he's presented in the gospel, you're going to be conflicted about God. You know, any right idea about God. And of course, you're going to be like so many who try to um, create God in their own image. <clears throat> you know, it's the ultimate idolatry. And I've, and I've mentioned that a number of times, but, you know, the, the first, I mean, the, the quickest way you know you're dealing with that in a person is when they start saying, well, my God wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. And what they, what they then proceed to tell you God wouldn't do or couldn't do or isn't like, um, is something where you immediately in your mind you say, well, but the Bible says he is like that, he would do that, he has done that, right? Which should you believe? The conception that someone has uh, that they've conceived very sinfully because they don't like the implications of the God of the Bible, right? Which is what? That they're going to come into judgment. That they're, they're not going to um, be excused, right? God isn't going to excuse them. They're guilty. <clears throat> and... You know, so you have that on the one side, you have what the Bible says on the other. So the, the confidence of the adoption of sons, uh, being adopted in the family of God, to be able to call God uh, by the Spirit, to, to be able to say, Abba, Father. To know that he's your father because Jesus is your brother, your elder brother in the faith. Um, that presents in the believer a confidence that should be there in all of our prayerful endeavors. And so that's the first thing he wants you to keep in mind um, in considering God as Father. We should come before God, you know, in, in childlike the simplicity of childlike faith. You know, believing that God will be uh, ever so happy to uh, receive us into His presence and grant our our um, all of our lawful desires, right? There's a second thing, 300. The second thing to be remembered about God as Father, <clears throat> and then we want to, uh, again, consider why, and then in the third place, what answer does this give to sin and unworthiness staring us in the face? So, <clears throat> we should approach God, he says, in prayer with faith in his gracious nature. Uh, you know, we, he's a gracious God. We should know he's a gracious God and know that he is, in fact, ready to receive coming and praying sinners. And the reason why is, he says, 
genuine filial confidence, which we talked about in the previous point, is always going to be accompanied with this kind of faith, that God is gracious, right? Not that I'm going to get what I deserve, but that God is gracious, And the answer this gives to sin and unworthiness, which is staring us in the face, is this. You know, we are sinners saved by grace. And, and he, Brown says, when we come before God with this filial, um, <clears throat> this filial confidence and faith, What we have is faith that God will be to us a father and faith that his fatherly affection uh, will preside over his granting of these things which are promised. God doesn't deal with us, again, according to what we deserve. It's Psalm 103.10 quotes here, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities, but uh, rather, as verse 8 of Psalm 103 says, uh, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plentiful in mercy. All right, 301, the third thing to be remembered about God as Father, why and what does this faith bring with it? So the third thing is, we should approach God not only with hope of acceptance, but with hope of getting what we're going to ask or at least something as good, if not better, right? Because sometimes you ask for something of God, and this is the point, uh, you ask in faith and you ask, but you don't really... you may not really uh, understand what it is you're actually asking God to do or to give. And God gives you something else than what you thought you were asking for. You, know, you should have confidence that what God is giving you, if it's something lawful, that what he's giving you is as good and sometimes even better. And the reason why is um, should consider what Christ said. You know, if a son should ask bread of any of you that is a father, is he going to give him a stone? If he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? If he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Right. 
Jesus says, you know, your earthly father who is by nature uh, corrupt, right? He, he, everyone has an evil nature. Uh, but he's going to give you good things. How much more is God going to give you good things when you ask? And then what faith brings with it. Faith, the faith of his fatherly and tender affections and dispositions brings along with it this faith of receiving what we ask, which is necessary and good for us. Move on to the fourth thing then to be remembered about God as Father, 302. Why and what does this plead? Fourth thing he says is that, you know, although we should come to God with this filial confidence and faith and so on, he says we should also come to God by prayer in a humble, self-abasing manner. And the reason why is even he says even though we're his children, he's our father. Uh, the fact is that we are unworthy and sinful children, and we can't plead anything of our own merit. There's nothing we have done which we can plead as being um, the ground for God being gracious to us. So he's saying, when you come before God in prayer, don't think you are wiser or better or in any way, um, you know, more virtuous than uh, other people. That there's, it's not you. It's not about you. It's it, it has to do with the fact that, uh, and, and this is. Uh, the third point, um, what we're pleading, uh, what, the, what this pleads when we plead that we're humble and, and so on, is that we have an interest in relation to him as father. And we expect... Uh, what we expect from him from free fatherly pity and compassion. Right? We don't have anything to give. There's nothing more maddening, nothing more off-putting than having someone who is completely unworthy uh, trying to assert some sort of merit and upon the, the basis of that merit demanding, uh, you know, attention, affection, uh, and all the things that we're demanding of God. We're doing it simply out of relation, right? And that relation is, you know, a covenant relation. <clears throat> uh, 
Right, the fifth thing remembered about God is Father, uh, three of three, and then why and what this uh, should instill in us. Does this instill in us? So uh, the fifth thing, he says, thinking about God as Father in this respect teaches us to draw near to God with holy fear and reverence as children approaching their father. Um, the reason that he gives is, you know, children, children who know their own state and condition by nature, uh, they will study to maintain a certain amount of honor, reverence, and respect because they owe it to their father. And and he's saying, likewise, this is what we owe to God, right? On a, on a much broader, deeper, uh, and and um, uh, majestic scale. Uh, nonetheless, we we have to uh, be very careful that we remember we are not. Uh, by any stretch of, of the imagination, we are not the superiors in this relation. We are um, the inferiors, and uh, from what we saw in, in the uh, previous point, you know, our <clears throat> inferiority is not just a matter of, of creator-creature, creator, um, but it's the holiness of God versus the sinfulness of mankind. So what does this instill in us? Uh, 303C. He says it would, it, this would, if we had this view, it would instill in us all due reverence and fear. We have this proper knowledge of how children should approach their fathers. You know, and there's, there is, to some extent, um, there's a direct relation in most people's lives between how they interact with their fathers and how they, they conceive of God. Right? It's very difficult uh, when you and this is a problem in our modern culture with with all these broken and blended and mixed up families. Um, <clears throat> it makes it very hard for people to conceive a right of God and their relation to God. So, you know, sometimes what we have to do, uh, because we live in, in such a broken time, we, we need to learn how to uh, approach God and then derive lessons from that that we can uh, apply retroactively, in a sense, in our sanctification. You know, because we didn't learn it the other way. But there's, there is, you know, in, in the nature of things, when people are doing, um, just civilly speaking, they're doing more of what they're supposed to be doing, there's an order and there is... Um, a certain pedagogy in that order 
that is instructing us and preparing us for uh, our interaction with the divine. <clears throat> it's it's. I mean, there there's certainly structure, but you know, there's uh, along with that structure. I think we have to understand that there's um, there's an ordering uh, that is in particular this superior and inferior relation. You know, people have trouble with that. You know, it's it's a matter of pride. We don't want to be, uh, by nature, we, we resist um, submitting to authority, lawful authority. Um, and that, you know, that's made more difficult when we're dealing with situations which are... Uh, more out of the norm of nature, if you will, right? All right, 304, wherein does this reverence consist? This is reverence that we're talking about. This is consistent in three things. 304A, first thing. It says, in having all high and respectful thoughts of God. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. You know, the, the mindset he's talking about with God is really uh, the mindset that you are to have with respect to your parents. And all lawful authority, right? And all lawful authority, right? So, <clears throat> um, that, you know, that's all lawful authority in church and state. <clears throat> when we're dealing with unlawful authorities or unlawful exercises of of authority, uh, that tends to taint this, and it makes it harder for us to think about this. But in order to clear our minds, we need to fix upon what honor and reverence really looks like. And Brown says, look, the first thing is it, it's going to have all high and respectful thoughts of God. The second thing, B, is it consists in having humble and low thoughts of ourselves. You know, as long as you are in, in, in a relation and you're thinking to yourself uh, along these lines, you're thinking, well, I could do better, I'm smarter, I could... Uh, accomplish this you know in a more efficient way whatever whatever the proposition is as long as you're thinking like that you're not thinking properly right in in that relation and that is uh, it doesn't just go double it, it it's you know exponentially infinite when we're talking about god and I know there's no such thing as exponentially infinite. It's hyperbole. <clears throat> All right. Um, uh, 304C, uh, the third thing in which mm -hmm. this consists is in 
carrying in all their deportment, or our deportment, very submissively and circumspectly. Lest we say or do anything to provoke the eyes of God's jealousy. <clears throat> So in other words, Brown is saying, look, if you have high thoughts of God, low thoughts of yourself, in the third place, it should be reflected in the way you think about other things and your behavior in general. If it's not, God's going to see it. Right? Now, that's not always the case, you know, with, with um, earthly or human authorities in your life. They, they don't always see. But God does. And that's exactly why, you know, whatsoever we do, whether we eat or drink, right, whatever, whatever we're thinking, whatever we're uh, trying to achieve, we're to do it to the, to the glory of God. Okay, 305. The sixth thing remembered about God is Father. And what should this encourage? Uh, why and what should this encourage? So the the, the sixth thing <coughs> is that this would teach us to approach with a holy importunity when we're pressed to speak what is necessary and useful for us. Now, what, what, he, what he means is, in, 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 let me tell you why, um, and, and this will help explain what he means by this, okay? The, the reason why is, he says, a child will be importunate with the parent for meat when he's hungry, for drink when he's thirsty, for clothes when he's naked. In other words, um, when these are things which are necessary, when these are things which are uh, useful for us, just like he's saying, just like a child can, you know, approach a parent and and say, "I'm really hungry, I'm really thirsty, I need something to wear." Um, those are the kind of things that are going to get God's immediate attention and and that attention uh, is is going to be uh, positive attention if you will right even though <clears throat> the child is importunate that is uh, you're you're going to be persistent right you're going to uh, you're you're not going to let up you're going to keep asking you're going to keep knocking as the verse goes until somebody opens that door. Brown's saying it's fine. I think necessary things, things which are, are useful. <clears throat> These are the kinds of things that you can um, you can pester God. Go ahead, pester him about it. Don't feel bad. You know, he said to ask.
Now, what should this encourage in us in? He said, it will encourage in us uh, the importunity to plead, to plead with the Lord for whatever a child of God wants or finds necessary, particularly on account of this relation. Right? And, and that, notwithstanding any discouragements that, that come flooding in, so, for example, he quotes Isaiah 63, 16. Uh, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father. <clears throat> so the pleading, you know, the pleading there is to the effect that even though, you know, we've degenerated uh, so far that our our covenanted progenitors, Abram and Israel, uh, they should disown us and no more look upon us as covenanted posterity, yet the covenant remains, right? And, and you're going to be importunate. You're going to plead that. So these are things which are, you know, necessary, useful. Uh, you've you, you've not lived um, up to that level of faithfulness of others. But you're not pleading your faithfulness. You're actually your opportunity in this case is based upon God's covenant faithfulness. Your opportunity is is taking hold of the idea that God uh, God will remain faithful. God's promises are not going to fail. This is the idea. So that should encourage us. All right, 306. <clears throat> uh, the seventh thing remembered about God is Father, why and what this should uh, what should this teach us? So the seventh thing to be remembered here is this should teach us to approach with affections warm toward God, with love and delight in him and with desire to please him. God is... Um, God is the ultimate father of the prodigal, right? Who's standing there uh, really waiting and watching for the prodigal to return, as it were. God is um, in every way forward in this relation to, uh, you know, to be where we're going to be before we are. And this, this really, um, this is why, you know, we should, well, he says when, as for the why, you know, why we should uh, have our affections warm toward God. 
he says that due reverence is accompanied with love. And, and that's what distinguishes due reverence from just fear. Right? Children should approach their father uh, not as approaching an enemy whom they hate, but as their father whom they love. What is it we want? We want to approach God in this way. Because he is our father. So, quote Psalm 18, 1, I will love thee, O Lord. In verse 3, I will call upon the Lord. Having our affections warmed really indicates that we are um, that we're doing what we're doing willingly there's a voluntariness right we're we're moved to uh, take hold of god from an inward principle of of heart affection toward god which, by the way, argues uh, that's something we, we talked about uh, on Friday night, uh, that this idea of the new heart, what the new heart is. And, you know, that, that part of the new heart <clears throat> that is a sign and seal of the covenant um, is to have this affection toward God, right? We need to be rightly affected toward God. When we're unbelievers, we are wrongly affected toward God. It's one of the things that keeps us from coming to God. We're wrongly affected. We we don't take delight in the things in which God takes delight. You know, God takes delight in holiness. God takes delight in in the keeping of his commandments. God takes delight in um, the obedience of his children. You know, unbelievers are rebels. You know, they they delight in rebellion. They delight in sin. They delight in darkness rather than light. So believers, one of the signs you are a believer is that you come to take delight uh, not only in the things of God, but as Brown is pointing out here, your affections are warm toward God in prayer to him. You delight to come to him in this way. So what they should teach us <clears throat> is that those, those who come to him... Uh, they need to come to him with the purpose to cleave to him. Not fearing that they're going to receive anything to their prejudice. And not having even the least suspicion that God is going to do them ill. Right? God is not in the business of child abuse. If your hearts are warm toward God, 
in that respect. You're, you're not even, it's not even going to cross your mind. You know, I've heard people say that they're concerned about praying to God, uh, that, or, or that they prayed about this or that, and, and that they're not sure that God would, would uh, be favorably disposed and so on. That's contrary to what Brown is talking about here. I mean, when your heart is rightly affected, uh, you're going to approach God with that, not, not just with that filial confidence, not just with faith, but with that that filial love of a child to uh, his father. And the last thing in this chapter, the eighth thing to be remembered about God as father, is, and, and this is a very important point on which he ends this chapter, uh, that we we have to come with filial submission, right? Not thinking that we're going to limit or pre- prescribe uh, what the Lord is going to do. <clears throat> the reason why is, you know, a child is not supposed to think that he's wiser than his father. So that he can, in a sense, dictate to him, you know, what he's going to give him, rather than allow the father to prescribe <clears throat> or tailor <clears throat> his response to the child's request in a way that is most um, beneficial to the child. A wise. A wise father, you know, if you have a uh, a child who comes to you, you're not going to you're not going to give the child something. Um, you're not going to grant a wish or a desire which is going to bring harm to that child or through that child to someone else. Right? That, that, you know, then that child has to live with that. <clears throat> That's not what you're going to do. And so he's saying, when we come to God in prayer, when there is this filial submission, you know, we're asking, but even in all things lawful, even in the promises of God, we're, um, in a sense, we're asking God uh, to do this, you know, if it's his will, um, to do it now, you know, if it's his will to do it in this place or this time, you know, we we need to be open. Uh, even in, in things where we have a promise of God, we need to be open to um, understanding that God ha- that God has a timing. Uh, that God has even in some of these things, you know, a place. There's a time and place for everything, but your time and your place may not be it. And, and were you to get that, it might absolutely destroy you, uh, not just temporally, but, but even sometimes spiritually. So this should teach us then that the children of God should come in prayer with that resolution to submit to him in all particulars.
we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't come in prayer. It's not filial, filial submission to come to God and demand that this be done now, this be done in this manner. Uh, this is the only way this could possibly be answered that would satisfy me. You know, that's not filial submission. And let me just, in, in, as we uh, wrap up this chapter, um, let me just point out that a lot of these prosperity churches today, uh, this, these different prosperity movements, it started out a number of years ago as Word of Faith movement, but there are these mega churches now um, that that are promising all kinds of things and telling people to command God with respect to all kinds of things um, with little or no uh, appreciation for this idea of filial submission. You know, when, you, when you start teaching people to pray in ways uh, that are contrary to what Brown has sketched out in this chapter, you're encouraging their rebellion. You know, you're not going to help anyone. You're certainly not going to help the true church. Um, a lot of times, these movements tend to uh, do exactly the opposite of what Brown has uh, told us we ought to do when we approach God as Father. Uh, they actually will will uh, engender in people low thoughts of God and high thoughts of themselves. You know, a lot of them are into various forms of self-esteem teaching or positive thinking and, and all of that. The Bible doesn't think that our problem is that we, um, we have too low an opinion of ourselves. You know, contrary to all these modern psychologists and and these modern preachers who who are worried that we might be um, uh, we might be thinking too lowly, we might be um, too too humble in our own self-assessment. Uh, the Bible has a lot more to say about pride of thought, you know, pride in your self-assessing and all of that, than in the other direction. It's true the Bible does address people who are downcast, uh, and and there are people who who are you know sometimes um, dejected to a point where they need uh, some kind of of um, positive word from Scripture to encourage them. Right, but even with people in the, that condition, a lot of times. People who are in that kind of extreme condition are there actually because they have views too high of themselves. And, and it's in a weird sort of way. Their views, and I alluded to this earlier, they have this view that they are so unworthy um, that they're even more unworthy than God said that he would be uh, willing to condescend to be to uh, to be reconciled with uh, that that person. And so, you know, this is 
in, in a backdoor sort of way, it is a kind of, of spiritual pride. It's a, it's a, a kind of spiritual pride that um, is, I, I would say, akin to the kind of self-flagellation we saw in the Middle Ages in some of these monasteries where the monks go around beating themselves. But it's not, you know, it's not, strictly speaking, biblical humility. Biblical humility um, is going to be able to join all the things that we were talking about today. You know, having high thoughts of God, low thoughts of yourself, and yet having this filial confidence, having faith, having this loving disposition toward God as Father. Right? That confidence that we can come to God as Father, not thinking that He's going to cast us off. And yet, that confidence is balanced with a uh, recognition that there's no meriting in ourselves uh, and that we're not in the driver's seat, right? When we come before God, when we ask him in, in prayer, we're not there to dictate to him the manner in which he's going to uh, answer this or that prayer. All right. With all of that set before us, next time in chapter 15, we're going to talk a bit about whose name and whose name prayer is to be made. And so we'll be uh, talking about uh, some of the formalities regarding prayer and why.